Um, you know, I can't speak to whether or not the early service is more spiritual than you. I just know the Bible speaks about getting up early and, uh, and meditating. And, you know, I, I don't know. You just, you, you got to take it up with scripture, man, not, not me. Um, no, we are very glad you're here. I will say I was so surprised at the attendance at the early service. And uh, if you're not careful, you guys are going to have to do some recruiting because they're going to overtake you. And that would be pretty embarrassing that the people who get up early and there's more people. I mean, come on, you guys got to you guys got to keep it together. Um, I do want to just draw your attention to a couple couple things. Let me let me say this one thing, I, I, and I'll get to my sermon. I promise. My uh, my mom has been coming to both services, the early service and the later service. And the first week she did it, uh, she came and you know took you know took notes and everything. And then and then the second service, it, you know, I'm I'm preaching the same thing. It's not like I'm making two different sermons, you know, for the real Christians and then you guys. But I'm preaching the same thing at each one. And uh, I, I, it was funny because she came up to me after the second service and she was like, the second time I listened to it, man, I really got it. I got what you were saying. So evidently the first service, they have no clue. It's just like they leave confused, have no idea. But the second service, you guys, you guys get the practice. Uh, so it's a little bit better. Um, so I want to give you a real quick roadmap of what we're going to be doing. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. Surprise, surprise. We are not going to rush this. We're just not going to like force it. We're not going to try to cram a bunch of stuff. This week, I don't know This is, I don't know if this is good or bad, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I was working on my sermon this week. I'm working away furiously, and I'm like, this is good. I'm really excited. I can't wait to share this. And then I'm like, this is going to be a four-hour sermon. So I had to cut it. So you're actually getting one sermon that's divided into two. Uh, and you would think that that would mean like, like it would be a 15-minute sermon. It's not going to be. It's going to be a regular <laughs> sermon. Um, but I want to give you a roadmap for where we're going and why we're doing it and why we're going methodically through this. Because if you've grown up in churches, um, really any church, doesn't matter the denomination or background, if you've grown up in churches, there's just so, I mean, we are just all over the place with the Holy Spirit. We're all over the place. Some churches are like, you got to do these things. And if you don't show the spirit in this way, then you don't really have the spirit. And other people are like, man, if you even mention the Holy Spirit, you're off. You know, that's crazy land right there. So, I mean, we're all over the place. And we need to get on the same page. And I think the page we should be on is what the Bible speaks about the Holy Spirit. We should be like just intensely studying this. So we started, and I, I told you a couple weeks ago, it's, it's kind of mind-blowing that the study of the Spirit starts in the first sentence of Scripture. In the very beginning, hovering over the waters uh, is the Spirit of God. And you start there, and we're just working our way through. So here's the road map. We, uh, we've been speaking about uh, the Spirit in the Hebrew Bible, Spirit in like Ezekiel 37, that's the promise of the Spirit. Uh, last week we talked about the one who was fully in sync with the Spirit, uh, and that of course is Jesus. We, we looked at, he, did, he said he did everything he did through the power of the Spirit, and then he said, guess what, you can have access to that same Spirit, mind-blowing. But this week we want to talk about what Jesus spoke about or taught about the Spirit. He had a lot to say about the Spirit. So we're going to do that this Sunday and next Sunday. Um, and then on the 20th, we're going to focus on, there's some big holiday, I think, coming that week. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. It's a religious holiday, I've heard. And then on the 27th, we're going to do a Q&R, which is question and response. I didn't say Q&A because I may not have answers for you, but we're going to do a question and response. So if you have questions about the Spirit, uh, let me know. You can write them and put them in that box in the back, and we'll get to those on that 27th. Of course, we'll take some more time in the future to do that if we need to, uh, but I think that'll be fun to explore that. I've got some great questions already, but keep them coming. 
And then um, at the beginning of the year, we're going to talk, the, we're going to start the year off with Pentecost. I'm excited about that too, because that is like the, that's the big event uh, about the Spirit coming to everyone. And then we'll get into Acts and letters and beyond. So we're going to start off today by asking a question that I think is probably universal, no matter your spiritual background, or, and really not even specific to the Spirit, but we think about it in terms of the Spirit. And the question is this, what should the experience of the Spirit feel like? I think that's a fair question. What should the experience of the Spirit feel like? And what I mean by that is, is, is uh, what, what sort of sensations or, or guidance does the Spirit just download truth right into my brain and boom, there it is, and I just know the right things to say? Or, or does the Spirit make me feel a sensation? And, and I don't mean this in a demeaning way. But it, does the Spirit make me feel the warm fuzzies? You know, it, it should, if the presence of God, if the Spirit of God is here, should I feel something? Should I just, is that, is that something that I should be able to sense with my physical senses? Um, should I get goosebumps? And again, not trying to minimize that, but what, what, is that, what does that mean? Does the fruit of the Spirit just show up? Bam, there's the fruit. Or is there like, do I have to work really hard to make the fruit of the Spirit happen? Like, what is the experience? What should be the experience? of the Spirit. And, and let me give you a little framework for that question because I'm assuming this is something many of us have thought and it's, it's what, what should we feel, for example, when we get baptized? As a church, we emphasize baptism very heavily and we, there should be an, a, an emotional experience with that. Like you've witnessed baptisms and people come up out of the water and they're rejoicing and they say things like, I felt clean, I felt cleansed, I felt God, I felt renewed, things like that. But some of you in here got baptized and you didn't feel anything. And you were like, uh-oh, did, did it not take? Did something, was, was my hand sticking out of the water? I mean, what happened? Did I, did I not do it right? When I was baptized, I was baptized when I was 12, um, I, I expected an experience. I expected something. I expected to feel differently. And I came out of the water and I didn't feel any different. And it, 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 it has haunted me or had haunted me for a long time thinking like, well, what, what was I supposed to experience? And so you search through the pages of scripture looking for what is supposed to be the emotional experience that we connect with baptism and you don't really find anything. Now, that, does that mean that the people who say, I felt washed and cleaned, are wrong? No. Does that mean if you didn't feel like any bubbly anything that you're wrong? No. But the question is, what should we experience with this relationship with God, with this filling of the Spirit? What should be that? What, what, what should we expect? And underneath that question is another question that I think really haunts us, and it's this. If I'm not sensing something, does that mean that I don't have the Spirit? When other people talk about their experiences and they're like, I just felt the presence of God, and you're sitting there in your chair thinking, man, I don't know that I've ever felt the presence of God. Does that mean that I don't have the presence of God or that God doesn't work in me or through me or that I don't have the Spirit? Like, like it really starts to raise some, some disturbing questions. Am I missing something? And for some people, it even makes us wonder, like, well, are those other people making it up? Are they really experiencing something or is that just some sort of like, are they just getting all wound up in the moment and they're not really any, feeling anything different? So those questions nag at us and I think it's important for us to kind of get our feet planted where we're going to be uh, today. So if you take your Bibles and turn to the book of John, the book of John, um, 
you know, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, scholars have discovered so many differences. They're all the same story, but so many differences in the book of John that they describe the first three, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as the synoptic Gospels because they're very similar. They've got similar construction and stories and pacing and everything. And then John is just doing his own thing. It's like John was just in another world. His mind was somewhere else. And he just takes stories from here and there, and he kind of arranges them how he wants to. And it's really funny because sometimes people will try to, like, mesh all the gospels together to make one narrative and John just doesn't it doesn't work it just doesn't fit because John's doing his own thing he highlights stories that aren't in the other gospels he talks about things he quotes Jesus in ways that the other gospels didn't he uses words and language that the other gospels don't it's just a very different book he has a different goal in mind one of the features which we'll address here in just a few minutes but one of the features of the book of John is that John uses a lot of legal language like in a courtroom, he uses a lot of language, legal, big words like that, um, that we, of course, don't know because it's written in Greek, but he uses a lot of le- legal language because he is making a case to people who don't know Jesus that Jesus was real and that he was trustworthy and that he, the witnesses and everything. He's just laying out this whole case, so he uses a lot of legal language. Time doesn't allow, but if you're interested in some of those references, I can give you those. But we'll talk about one of them here in a minute. John is really interesting because he spends a lot of time, and this is fascinating to me. I don't know if you've noticed this, but if you read through the book of John, he spends a crazy amount of time on one evening with Jesus, one dinner with Jesus. Nearly 25% of the gospel of John is actually just one meal. Believe it or not, like the whole thing, like there's, there, there's all these years of Jesus' life, but John's like, I'm really interested in this one meal, these few hours that the apostles had with Jesus. And so we want to look at that one meal. We're not going to read, it's like five chapters, we're not going to read the whole thing, uh, but I want to draw your attention to a few things in there. So here's the highlights of the evening of this meal, this dinner with Jesus. Jesus washes the apostles' feet, you remember that story, right? That happened here. Um, he predicts that Judas would betray him at dinner. That makes for an awkward dinner conversation. In fact, Judas bailed early on the dinner. Can you imagine that was weird? Um, He said Peter would deny him at this dinner. He said, Peter, yeah, you're going to deny me three times, in fact. And Peter, you know, arguing. I mean, it was a weird meal. And then at the end of the meal, um, he broke the news. Not even the end of the meal. It's kind of like even before dessert shows up, he broke the news. And he's like, hey, guys, I just want you to know I'm leaving. And where I'm going, you cannot come. And the apostles are like, whoa, slow down. Hang on. Do you realize, Jesus, that we have given up our livelihoods, our vocations? We've left our families for you. You are the center point of our lives, and you're just leaving? Like, Peter, these guys had walked away from the family fishing business. Matthew literally left his desk where he was taking in uh, tax money and, and to follow Jesus. And this person, this rabbi, this teacher that had been the fixed point in their lives was just like, oh, by the way, I'm leaving. You can't come with me. And they're like, where where are you going that we can't come with you? You know, because they were going to follow him anyway. And so Jesus has this whole conversation and he tells them things. It's really, really interesting. He tells them things to calm them down, like, don't let your hearts be troubled. Uh, My peace I give you. These are all these quotes that you're familiar with where Jesus said, they're all said at this one dinner. He says, it's good for you that I'm leaving. We'll talk about that in a minute. And he says, I have overcome the world. In this world you will have trouble, but I have overcome the world. He's trying to just relax, guys. It's okay. So all these amazing quotes that we have that we know and we're familiar with from Jesus come from this one dinner. The dominant fixture in their lives is off. He's leaving. 
You uh, parents, you remember when uh, you first, the first time you left your kids with the babysitters, you thought, you thought this is going to be wonderful. Like we have been, we have been focused on this child 24-7. They've been the center of our universe for, for months and we're just, we're finally going to leave them for one night with grandma or a trusted friend or whatever. And you go out to dinner. What's the one thing you think about that entire dinner? The baby. Because this person that has occupied your time and attention 24-7 is now not there, and that's all you can think about. And so you can imagine, like, these, uh, these apostles are like, what? what are we supposed to do? This has been our lives, and you're just leaving? What are we supposed to do now? So, he, so here's the, the evening so far. Judas, you're going to betray me. Okay, great. Peter, you'll deny me. Uh, the world, everybody, is going to hate you, and they're probably going to kill you. They're certainly going to try. I'm going to leave. And then Jesus is like, okay, uh, who's ready for, you know, dessert? I mean, this is a meal with Jesus. Wow. So let's listen in. I want you to take your Bibles. John chapter 16, verse 7. This is right about three quarters of the way through dinner. John chapter 16, verse 7. And I want you to see what happens midstream in this conversation. Remember, they're unsettled. They're uncertain. What's going to happen? How's this going to work? In John 16, 7, he says this. But very truly, I tell you. And Jesus always used that phrase when he was like, guys, there's no hyperbole, no exaggeration here. You guys know that Jesus used exaggeration to make points sometimes, right? Yeah. Yeah. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. He's exaggerating a little bit. I suppose he would be okay if we went that far. But it's an exaggeration to make a point. But he's like, listen, very truly I tell you. Listen to me. It is for your good that I'm going away. Uh, what? That doesn't sound right. Good? No. Now there's so much going on in this verse. Look at the second half. Unless I go away... The advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Well, let's focus on that good for a second. Good? How is it good? Wouldn't it be so much better if Jesus were here? Like, wouldn't, I mean, how much better would it be if we were like, man, I really don't know what to do. You know, I'm having this trouble with, you know, like, like family stuff or work stuff or relationship stuff. I'm going to go talk to Jesus. That would be, that would be so much better. Just like, Jesus, can, uh, can I get on your calendar? You know, let's meet for coffee. I got some things I want to go over with you. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be better? What are you talking about Jesus is better if you leave? That doesn't make sense. Um, I don't know what the age cutoff for this would be, but do you remember when you used to go on a road trip and you had to bring a map, a paper map that you folded with you? And if you were on a solo road trip, like there was no just like listening to uh, directions spoken to you. You had to like unfold this thing and you had to figure out where you were. You had to make sure you were looking at the right side. You had to make sure that you weren't like seeing, uh, you know, construction traffic that was in the way or detours that you didn't know about that weren't listed on the map. You had to know where you were on the map. If you were a guy, of course, you don't stop and ask for directions, which I know is like a stereotypical thing for guys to do. But this is what you had, this map. It's, it's helpful. Maps are helpful, but they're pretty limited. It can only help you so much because if you don't know where you are, it's not really anything you can do about that. And if there's construction traffic, it can't tell you. It doesn't read you the directions, none of those things. So maps, they're great. They're wonderful. I love maps. I can spend lots of time on Google Maps, lots of time on Google Maps, but they're limited helpfulness. And then along came the Internet, and with the Internet came MapQuest. You remember MapQuest? Where you were, oh my goodness, how old am I? Some of you are like, I don't know. MapQuest was where you printed out the directions. And so somebody would give you an address, and MapQuest would tell you from point A to point B, from your door to their door, how you get there turn by turn. And it would say you, you travel for like 3.7 miles, and then you turn left and whatever. And MapQuest was a revelation. Remember, we used to use it as a verb. You, mean, you need directions? No, I'll MapQuest it. It was, it was a revelation. Like, oh, this is unbelievable. However, 
if you got off trail, if you took a wrong turn, MapQuest couldn't get you back. You were stuck. You couldn't figure out how to get back. And if there was construction and detours and traffic and whatever, MapQuest couldn't help you with that. And then along came Bam! Your phone. And your phone is unbelievable. Your phone not only tells you where to go, it tells you if there's construction, it tells you if there's traffic, it tells you if there's detours. It will read the directions to you in any language or any accent you want. How many of you have a different accent on your directions? My wife has a, like an Australian guy reading the directions to her. You can do any accent. How wild is that? It's unbelievable. It's so much better. It will tell you, like, you've made a wrong turn. Rerouting. You're a dummy. Get back on the road. I mean, it's amazing what it is relative to a paper map, relative to MapQuest. This is going to sound wild, but Jesus was a paper map. And I don't mean that's bad. He showed us the way. Here's how you get there. But he's limited. There are only so many humans in the world that speak Aramaic, the language that Jesus spoke. There are so many humans in the world that could hear the sound of his voice. There are so many people he could talk to at a certain time. You imagine you want to talk with Jesus, schedule an appointment with Jesus. Well, guess what? He's booked out for the next three millennia. You think it's hard to get a doctor's appointment or a dentist's appointment? Forget it. Jesus only has 24 hours in a day. And evidently Jesus is a bit of an introvert because he'll spend part of the day off in the mountains by himself praying. He doesn't even have the full 24 hours. He's got to sleep sometimes too. And evidently Jesus was a fan of naps because sometimes you would get in a boat and fall asleep during storms. Jesus only has so much time for you. He's limited by this physical human body. His time and attention and his energy are limited. But Jesus says, it's good for you that I go away because we're upgrading to a new technology. You are now getting GPS and we can download the spirit into your heart. And it can be in any language. It can be in any accent. It can be in any, any, any way that you need it. It's good for you that I go away because I'm going to go away and send the advocate. Spoiler alert. That's the spirit. We'll talk about that in a second. It's good for you. Because you're getting an upgrade. And we just don't have any concept of this because those of you that have grown up with these phones, you don't even know how to get around the Twin Cities because you just use your phone. I'll just put it in my phone. What if your phone dies? You're stuck. You're lost forever. You have no idea how good you have it. We have no idea how good we have it because we've never had to live without what God, the promise of the Spirit in the world. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in just a second. It is good. Absolutely, it is good. But let's go on. Let's go on. The advocate. Let's talk about the advocate. That's not a word you use today. Anybody use advocate in their, in their or the verb advocate, I guess? Um, it's, a, it's a legal term. It's a legal word. John is going through his vocabulary, and well, Jesus, and he's, he's quoting Jesus, and Jesus is like, how do I want to describe what this spirit is, what the experience of the spirit is? Hmm, you know what? I'm going to choose a legal term. I'm going to choose advocate. Now, some of you, if you look through your scriptures, you look through your Bibles, you'll see different words. Some of you will see counselor, helper. Uh, if you have an old King James comforter, not the blanket, but just, you know, comforter. And then you'll see friend if you're using one of those fancy new translations like the message. So all these words are kind of like the blind men and the elephant. They all kind of get at the idea. But it's a legal term. 
Now, in the first century, they didn't have lawyers like we do. They were not paid professional staff. If you got yourself in legal trouble, if uh, somebody accused you of robbing a bank or stealing a camel in the first century, you didn't, have, you didn't call up your lawyer, you didn't call, you know, look at a billboard and say, you know, who's attorney at law. You actually called um, a friend or somebody you knew. And they would serve as, it was free of charge, you couldn't charge to do this, it was part of the law. They would serve as your advocate. Meaning they would come alongside you and they would say, hey, here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to say. I'll, this is what I'm going to tell the judge for you. This is, I know you, man. I know this is true. I'm going to speak on your behalf. I'm going to, come, I'm going to put my arm around you. We're going to walk through this together. That was an advocate. That's, I mean, look it up. Just look up Greek legal systems. You'll see all this. It's a fun study. But this is a strange, a strange concept. Like, how do we relate this to what the spirit is? The, uh, in fact, some translations of the Bible just use the word, par- what looks like it says paraclete, but it's parakletos, it's the Greek word for advocate, a paraclete. Um, and Jesus, just, just in case you're nervous about this, Jesus uses the term advocate and spirit interchangeably in these five chapters. So if you're wondering, like, Patrick, are you making this up? No. He says, I'm going to leave, I'm going to send the advocate, the spirit, the paraclete to you. Years ago... Um, before I moved here, I, I served as a character witness in a sentencing hearing. So it wasn't the trial. Guy had already pled guilty. Um, but, you know, you, you, the judge is about to sentence this person. And the judge needs to know, is like, is this a career bad guy? Is this just a terrible human that just we throw the book at him? Or is this a decent human that's, you know, made some bad choices? And so the family, this, this guy came to our church. The family asked me to be a character witness for him. And, and from what I knew... His character was pretty good. He had made bad choices, but he was not a bad person. And so they said, will you come speak on his behalf? Oh, absolutely. That sounds great. And so the defense attorney, uh, you know, gave me a little bit of advice. Here's the things you want to highlight. Make sure you talk about what a family man he is. And it's all stuff. I wasn't lying. I wasn't, like, trying to hide the truth. I felt like he had made some bad choices, but he hadn't done this bad thing that he was accused of. But here's the problem. I'll give you a little bit of background. He had been accused of a crime that was pretty serious. And he had made some bad choices that made him look guilty of the serious crime, but they weren't that crime. Had he fought it and been found guilty, he likely would have been sentenced to 10 years in prison. If he pled guilty, the the likelihood is that he would get two years in prison. So that was the debate he had. There's this thing called an Alfred plea, but we won't get into that right now. But anyway, they asked me to be this character witness, and this guy decided, you know what, I can't fight this. I can't risk 10 years of my life. He was in his 50s at that point. He can't risk, I I just can't be gone for 10 years from my family, from my kids, from my grandkids. I'm going to plead guilty. I'm going to go to prison for two years, and that'll be it. And then maybe if Patrick does a really good job as being a character witness, maybe we can even get that reduced. So Patrick takes the stand. Do you swear, tell the truth, the whole truth? Yes, I swear, tell the truth. And the defense attorney walks me through a couple of statements, and they're, you know, pretty straightforward. Is he a good guy? He's a good guy. Is he, you know, like, is, is he a family man? All that kind of stuff. What the defense attorney did not prepare me for was the cross-examination, which I didn't realize was a thing when you're a character witness. 
The prosecutor can get up and ask you some questions. Now, I love the law. That was one of the things I was kind of interested in in, in being um, a a lawyer when I was a kid because my mom told me I was really good at arguing, so I thought maybe this is the career path for me. And so I thought maybe this is it. But my legal experience are things like John Grisham novels. That's like the most, you know, I've always wanted to be uh, called to a jury on jury duty. Hasn't happened yet. Fingers crossed it'll happen someday. But I'm fascinated with the law. I just don't know a lot about it. And so I'm sitting there. And I'm, I'm starting to get nervous. The prosecutor starts to cross-examine me. And he starts off with this one question. And he says, uh, he says uh, well, uh, Mr. Doherty, do you think that so-and-so did it? Did they commit the crime? And I'm sitting there, and I'm, like, I'm trying to be a good character witness. And I say, well, uh, no. I, I think they've made some mistakes, but I, I don't think that they're guilty. I've never seen a lion hunting a gazelle. But whatever look that it gets in his eyes is, I think, the same look that the prosecutor looked at me with because I had made a crucial mistake that I didn't realize. I had made a crucial error. And then the prosecutor just, you know, so, oh, oh, you, you don't think he's guilty? Uh, excuse me, Mr. Doherty, did uh, the defendant plead guilty? Uh, and then I started to stumble. Well, yes, he pled, but I don't think he, I, it was circuit. And the prosecutor's like, yes or no, Mr. Doherty, did the defendant plead guilty? Yes, he pled guilty. Uh, so was the defendant lying when he pled guilty? Well, no, I mean, I don't, I, I don't, I, I, you know, I'm sorry, you know, like, and he ended up getting sentenced to 10 years because of my terrible, no, not really. Fortunately, you know, the, the judge could tell I had no idea what I was doing and I was trying to do my best. But the guy, like the prosecutor, did this wonderful job of taking my words and using them for his, his benefit. The defense attorney is supposed to take all those things and use them for the defense's benefit. They're supposed to be an advocate for the defense. They're supposed to be an advocate for the person. And we've gotten into this weird legal system where sometimes the defense attorney knows that the guy's guilty and they're still trying to get him off and this whole, whole weird stuff. But back in Greek society, your advocate was someone who was on your side. They were the person who, when your life was just completely falling apart, that it was chaotic and confusing and just these, just this worst moment of your life, they were the person that you're like, oh, that's the person I need to come in and help me, and, and, and walk beside me, and put their arm around me, and talk to me, and guide me, and help me think through this. That is the person. And it, it's, you know, we don't like asking for help much, and we really don't like asking for help when it means that we have to expose our vulnerabilities to people, when we have to say, yeah, I've made some bad, ugly decisions, and I need to invite you into this mess, and you're going to see all of it, and then you're going to help me navigate out of it. We don't like doing that. But as Jesus is sitting at this meal, and he's thinking, hey, you know what? It's good. It's good that I go, because if I go, and then he searches for the right word to fit this idea of what the experience of the Spirit would be like in your lives. If I go, then the advocate, the comforter, the friend, the counselor from God is going to come. And he's going to come right next to you and he's going to put his arm around you. And he's going to walk you step by step forward through whatever it is that you're going through. That is the experience of the Spirit. That's the word Jesus settled on when he was trying to tell us what the Spirit was all about. Oh, man, it's so interesting to think about. I think we need to say something um, incredibly important. 
when we talk about the experience of the Spirit. And we're going to tie a couple thoughts together here. Um, the other night, uh, I, it was, I don't know, you know, sunsets at about 1230 in the afternoon right now. So it's dark real, <laughs> real early. Fun, fun and, and, you know, de- depressing. Um, but I, I decided, hey, we're going we're, we're gonna to go look at this light show, kids. There was a, a, a local church in another city that had advertised a light show, crucial words, light show. And uh, we're going to go look at this light show. My kids weren't really having it. They wanted to stay home, watch Netflix or whatever. But I'm like, no, this is going to be a good family moment. We're all going to get packed into the car. Everybody's going to be in a good mood. And we're going to go experience the joy of the holidays through this church light show. Because, you know, it's not, not a lot of options right now. So kids are in the car. They're not really excited. They're, like, asking those skeptical questions like, when you say light show, what do you mean? Now, in my mind, I was thinking Trans-Siberian Orchestra loud music, laser lights. That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that, and I'm like, I'm not sure, but that's what I'm thinking. So we drive there. It's about a 20-minute drive, and I can kind of see from a distance, and we pull into this church parking lot, and I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. This is, this is not, not only is this not a light show, this isn't even, like, I wouldn't even want this to be, like, my show at my house. This is bad. This is really bad. My kids already don't want to be here. I've built it up a little bit. This is bad. Now, I'm not, uh, this church I'm sure is trying very hard, but their crucial was, mistake was calling it a light show. If you had called it, yeah, we have about 30 lights wrapped around a tree and a little bit of Christmas music, we would have been like, okay, that's what we expected. But we expected a light show. And we got there and there wasn't a light show. And we all like walked away saying, well, drove away saying, uh, not great. Now, God bless them, trying to do their best. They just oversold what the experience was supposed to be. Um, Bruce Goodwin. You guys know Bruce. He is our, I I called him in the first service, our resident scholar. Uh, He's a longtime Church of Christ preacher. And he'll often email me uh, after uh, sermons, you know, giving me some feedback and thoughts. And I've asked him, this is the type of guy Bruce is, let me just peek behind the curtain. I've said, Bruce, give me some criticism. Give me some feedback. And Bruce is like, nope, you probably get enough criticism in your life. I'm only going to give you the positive. And that's why we love Bruce. Like he's just, just, he's such a good guy. And he, he knows my love language. My love language is saying nice things about me. And Bruce is, uh, so Bruce sent me an email this week and we're talking a little bit about this idea, the experience of the spirit. And I just, I asked him if I could share this quote with you from the email. And Bruce has a beautiful baritone voice that God blessed for preaching. He didn't, God gave me kind of a little bit of a Mickey Mouse, you know, high-pitched, whiny, speak too fast. Bruce has this beautiful voice. I can't do it justice, but imagine these in Bruce's words. He says, part of our expectation of the Spirit is to have some big internal experience. Like, like I mentioned earlier, kind of the warm fuzzies. Again, not trying to be demeaning, just trying to, that's what we think. He goes, this may happen occasionally, But I don't think that's the normal Christian experience. He goes, it's fascinating to think that faithful disciples experienced long, dark periods of distance from God. You know, literally, if you open up your Bible to the Hebrew Scriptures and just read the stories of those guys, almost every one of them wrote things like, God, where are you? God, what's going on? God, why is this happening? It's not the normative experience to have the, the, the goosebumps and the, the sensation that we sometimes would associate with the presence of God. I, I think it's fair to say, this is a rephrasing of what Bruce would say, 
is that a sense of the Spirit's absence is often created by wrong expectations of what the Spirit's closeness should feel like. If I am expecting a light show and I get a few lights on a tree, well then that's not very cool because I have created an expectation that wasn't real. Now listen, this is so important. Can the Spirit give you all those feelings? Of course. Of course. Does he for some people? Absolutely. Some people are wired that way. Some people experience and see God in ways that I I don't. But does it mean that if you don't experience the Spirit in that way, that the Spirit is not working in your life? No. No. Because when you read Scripture for your expectations of what the Spirit should and shouldn't do, there's a different story. I don't mean that we should lower our expectations. I mean that we should reset our expectations. This isn't about lowering. You need to hear this very carefully. Bruce goes on to say this. Uh, He says, we are not impressed enough at the miracle of seeing the fruit of the Spirit in someone's life. I don't know that we heard that right because this is really important. We are not impressed enough at seeing the miracle of the fruit of the Spirit in someone's life. We are not in awe of someone overcoming a struggle over garden variety selfishness. We should be overjoyed when we see someone lean toward generosity over selfishness. That is a miracle of the Spirit. And here's the problem is we often miss crucial evidence of the Spirit's work, evidence for and experience of the Spirit because we fail to be impressed by the everyday miracles of the Spirit. Listen, uh, for some people, if someone's struggling with depression and anxiety, for them to get their, themselves out of bed and put their feet on the floor, that is a miracle. That is a miracle for them to walk across the room, go to the bathroom and brush their teeth and comb their hair. That is a miracle. That is the Spirit filling their sails and moving them forward. We want glitter from heaven. We want lights. We want stardust. We want clouds. We want laser lights. We want a light show. And the Spirit is saying, I'm going to get this person out of bed. And that's the most amazing thing that's going to happen in their day. That's unbelievable for some people. For some people, showing up at church on a Sunday morning is a miracle. That is God filling the wind in their sails and getting them to church. Because some of you have had this experience. You've gotten out of bed and you've started putting on clothes. And you're like, I don't want to go to church. And you're putting on your belt. I don't want to go. You're putting on your shoes, tying, go, getting your keys. I don't want to go. I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't want to go. And you get to church and you're like, oh, I'm so glad I came. That was the Spirit <laughs> pushing you. We didn't recognize it, though, because we were expecting a light show. Can God give us a light show? Sure. Did he do that sometimes in scripture? Yes. Is he going to do that every day? No. And if that's what you're basing your expectations of the spirit on, then some of you this week have held your tongue when you just, it would have felt so good to say those hurting, biting words to someone you love. You've held your tongue. That was a miracle of the spirit. It wasn't your own power. There's the spirit working in you. Some of you pushed a thought out of your mind. There was a thought stuck there. And you're like, I don't want to think this. I don't want to dwell on this. I don't want that. And you, the spirit was able to get it out of your mind. That's the spirit. Some of you prayed, even though you didn't think it would do any good. That was the spirit filling your sails. Some of you paused. You had a mountain to-do list to do this week. So many things. You were so stressed out. But you still paused and centered your morning around scripture. That was the spirit. Some of you made it 24 hours without a drink. That's the spirit. That's the spirit. Man, 
I think we should celebrate those everyday moments, those everyday miracles. We're over here saying, God, where's the light show? And God's like saying, are you kidding me? I got you out of bed. I mean, I made you had a good interaction with your husband or your wife today. Are you kidding me? That's the light show. You've got your attention focused on the wrong things. We should celebrate those. If we're looking for warm fuzzies, sometimes that will happen. But you know what happens when we are looking for warm fuzzies? If we don't find it, we assume God isn't real, or we figure out ways to manufacture it so that we can have that experience. But it's not really God. God's saying, I'm interested in fruit in your life. I'm interested in you expressing love. You want to experience something? Experience love. Experience joy. Experience peace. Experience patience. Those are the things that I'm interested in expressing in your life. All right. I got to stop because I'm, I'm going to get on a roll and we're going to run out of time. I guess we don't have a third service to run into, so I can preach forever, right? <laughs> um, but if any of this, if any of this has raised any questions for you, awesome. I welcome those. I think we should wrestle with this. I think if we're settled on what we think of the Spirit, then we do not know anything about the Spirit. Because Jesus said the Spirit is mysterious. It, it's like the wind. It blows where it will. So if we think, ah, oh, I've got the Spirit figured out, well, then I know for sure that you don't. But there's so many things we could talk about. Next week, we're going to... We, we looked at like one verse today. Next week, we're going to explore what Jesus said specifically about the experience of the Spirit. And it is very surprising. I was working on the sermon this week, and I'm like, whoa, this is ridiculous, because this is not at all what we expect when we think about the Spirit. And Jesus, I think, probably was a little bit more in tune with what we should experience than maybe we are. So come back next week. We're going to look at the remainder of uh, this text in John chapter 16. But for now, let's live in and celebrate the miraculous power of the Spirit working in our everyday lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful to, to, to be here this morning. Uh, there's so much, God, that we are recognizing that we don't know. Uh, but Lord, I, I, I speak on behalf of everyone in this room when I say, Lord, we want to know your spirit. We want to be guided by your spirit. We want to be led by your spirit. We want the experience of your spirit. If that is not true for a person in this room, may it be true today. God, we want to be completely in tune and in step with the Spirit of, of God, the Spirit of Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that we would understand that he is that advocate that's going to come along beside us, put his arm around us, and guide us step by step through life. Help us celebrate those everyday miracles. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May you be filled with the Spirit.